Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. On this date, 265 years ago, Mozart was born, and our world remains ever more beautiful for his legacy. WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart and I will celebrate with you by sharing some of our favorite works by Mozart. First, much has been said and written about Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff being elected to the U.S. Senate earlier this month, especially regarding race and religion. Those topics, sadly, remain bitterly divisive for many people today. The Bremen Museum is offering a series of talks on Atlanta Jewish history beginning Thursday with a discussion about the Leo Frank case. Joining me now are Steve Oney, the author of And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan and the Lynching of Leo Frank, and Jeremy Katz, the Bremen Museum Director of Southern Jewish History Archives and author of the recently released book of historic photography, The Jewish Community of Atlanta. Thank you for zooming in to talk with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Lois. Thank you. Jeremy, why did the Bremen want to create this series now? Well, you mentioned John Ossoff. I've been joking that my uh, book has been published for a matter of mere moments, and it's already outdated thanks to the historic election of Senator John Ossoff. But all joking aside, I think it's just so indicative of the constantly evolving and contributing nature of the Jewish community of Atlanta. This six-week speaker series, which Steve and my predecessor, Sandy Berman, graciously agreed to kick off, will feature leading historians in their respective fields, and it's going to be a deep dive into this community's history. And it was really created to promote the release of this book, which utilizes the amazing photograph collections in the archives at the Freeman Museum. And a lot of people just, uh, this unknown history that people don't realize how ingrained the history of the Jewish community of Atlanta is with this city. 
I'll give you a perfect example. We may not even be sitting here right now talking today, Lois, if it wasn't for the Rich Foundation. People may remember Rich's department store, their charitable foundation, gifted WABE's broadcasting license to the city in one of their first charitable acts in 1948. Uh, and this is a story that's true time over and over again for so many of Atlanta's icons, including Coca-Cola, the first glass of Coke was sold at a Jewish owned business, Jacobs Pharmacy. Joseph Jacobs was the owner, actually owned a large share of Coca-Cola that fell on some hard times and, and sold his shares to Asa Candler, the rest is history. Georgia Tech was founded in part thanks to a Jewish entrepreneur, a Jewish immigrant named Jacob Elsis. He needed engineers for his mill. And this is true for Henry Grady Hospital, the High Museum of Art, Emory University, and so many icons that when you think of, of Atlanta, they pay homage to the Jewish community of Atlanta. And so I wrote this book and we're putting together this series to highlight those contributions and bring those stories to light. Hmm. Steve, your research and book established your reputation as the foremost historian on the Leo Frank case. That's very for, kind. Well, it is true. And for those unfamiliar with the horrific events involving Leo Frank and Mary Fagan, would you provide a brief history lesson, please? Yes. I tell people that the Leo Frank case is a double murder mystery and a social history. The first murder is the murder of little Mary Fagan, as she was known, a 13-year-old child laborer at the National Pencil Factory, which was in downtown Atlanta on Forsyth Street, where the Sam Nunn Building now is. Her employer, Leo Frank, a Cornell-educated, Brooklyn-raised Jewish industrialist who moved to Atlanta and married into a very good family, the Selig family, was the last person to admit having seen her alive and was accused of murdering her and convicted. And the conviction was upheld all the way to the US Supreme Court. At the 11th hour, Georgia's then governor, John Slayton, commuted Frank's death sentence to life imprisonment. And that so angered people from Georgia that a very daring raid was conducted on the state prison, which was then in Milledgeville. Frank was abducted without a shot being fired, driven to Marietta, where Fagan's family home was, and lynched. And out of that crime really grew some of the polarizing forces that are still alive with us today. And they were identified then by the Ku Klux Klan, which held its first cross burning on Thanksgiving Eve 1915, three months after the lynching, and the Anti-Defamation League, which had been formed in 1913, but the Frank lynching was a catalyst for its expansion. So it's a case with tremendous ramifications. And earlier this month, you wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post about the historic importance of John Ossoff's election to the Senate. How does this victory relate to the Leo Frank case? Well, I think in a sense, John Ossoff's victory ends the shadow that the Leo Frank case has cast on Atlanta. Now, many people, everyone really, goes about their daily life in Atlanta without an awareness of the Leo Frank case, but it cast a pall, especially on the Jewish community. And 
For years, Atlanta Jews did not want to talk about it. It was deeply discomforting. And the reason this was so was it upset their sense of being part of that assimilated Atlanta that Jeremy was talking about, that Atlanta of Jacob's Drugstore and Georgia Tech, the Atlanta in which Jews and Gentiles moved equally in the power structure. And the Leo Frank lynching undermined that sense of well-being. And really one of the reasons it did is that the Leo Frank lynching was orchestrated by some very powerful people. There's no other way to have abducted a state prisoner from a state prison and lynch him without anyone being prosecuted. It, it was a deeply unsettling act for Atlanta Jews. Can you tell us a bit more of what you hope to touch upon in your first discussion? You know, we're gonna have a broad ranging conversation. Sandy Berman, who put together the terrific Bremen sponsored exhibit about the Leo Frank case knows a tremendous amount about the subject. And she's a tiger of a researcher and found everything from pencils manufactured by the National Pencil Company to the door on the cell from which Leo Frank was abducted. Uh, so we're just gonna try to give a sense of what happened. And I'm gonna talk about some of the more emotional elements for me, how at certain points uh, I was overcome with the deep wound and learning about the burial of Leo Frank's widow, Lucille Frank. Her family was afraid to bury her in a public ceremony, so they buried her ashes with garden tools in an unmarked plot in Oakland Cemetery. I'm going to talk about how I learned who the Lynch Party members were and how they covered up this crime for nearly 100 years. And it was a Jeremy used the word deep dive. It was a very deep dive for me. This was not easy to learn, and it took me quite a number of years to get to it. I can't imagine what some of your dreams or nightmares must have been during that time. Well, it was not the feel-good movie of the summer, the, but, um, but I thought it was well worth doing. I, I think it's important. I think it happened, and we can't paper it over. I do believe that by discussing it and examining it, uh, we lay it to rest. Hmm. Jeremy, would you just touch upon a few of the other discussions that will be given in the five weeks following? Yeah, happy to, Lois. Uh, this is going to be a really fantastic series that we curated with, as I mentioned, experts in the field. It's, it's going to be a, almost like a 200-level series class. So we're we're uh, approaching this is that people already kind of have an understanding for Atlanta history, for Jewish Atlanta history. The book that I wrote is the recommended textbook. Of course, there's gonna be further reading. Steve Oney's book will certainly be a part of that as well. Um, but we're gonna be talking about the activism of Jewish women, the rise of riches. Uh, that will be with uh, the president of the Rich Foundation, Tom Asher, and Jeff Clemens, the author of Riches, a Southern Institution. We'll be talking about um, the old Jewish neighborhood of Atlanta that a lot of people forget. Uh, that was down by Grant Park and Canicksville and Peoplestown. Um, that is going to be with Marnie Davis, uh, a associate professor of history at Georgia State, who's studied this and created maps to locate these communities. We were talking earlier about John Ossoff. We'll be talking about another Jewish politician, Morris Abram, who a lot of people forget, but he helped overturn the county voting unit system 
that was basically a electoral college system, but at the state level, and that allowed politicians like Jimmy Carter to uh, run for a local office. And he also helped Martin Luther King get out of prison uh, during the 1960 election through help with the Kennedy campaign. So a larger than life figure that often gets overlooked. And that'll be with the uh, biographer of Morris Abram, David Lowe, who just wrote a book uh, called Touched by Fire, and it's a biography of Morris Abram. And then we'll be ending the series, we're kind of bookending the series with kind of the two infamous cases of anti-Semitism in Atlanta, because we, like Steve said, we don't want to gloss over these subjects. There's so many contributions that Jews have made to the city of Atlanta and helped it become this international city that we know today, but there are these instances of anti-Semitism that have plagued the community. And I think it shows the resilience of the community to overcome these, but not also sweep them under the rug. So the last week we'll be talking about uh, uncovering the history of anti-Semitism at Emory's Dental School that took place in the 1950s with the anti-Semitic dean of the dental school, John Bueller, who expelled a majority of the Jewish students in his program. And that will be with Perry Brickman, Dr. Perry Brickman, who was actually one of those students who was expelled uh, and later exposed this anti-Semitism, just came out with a book all about his experience and his research. Uh, and that'll be moderated by Dr. Eric Goldstein, who is the director of the TAM Institute for Jewish Studies at Emory, which has become one of the leading Jewish studies programs in the country. I think this question is for both of you. Do you think that Atlanta has progressed in embracing the Jewish community? Or are we still this model minority? I'm happy to jump in there because I'm a, a, a millennial living in Atlanta. And I'm actually, a, like many Atlantans, I'm a transplant here. I moved here eight years ago almost to start working at the Freeman Museum. And even in my time here in Atlanta, I've seen the, the city and the state change dramatically. And I've seen amazing contributions that this Jewish community has made, even in the time that I've been here. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I wrote the book, is that my own personal experience of, of entrenching myself in the history of this community and having these aha moments of, of the contributions that Jews have made to the city to make it what it is today. And it helped me feel connected to this city, to have that knowledge of the contributions that Jews have made to Atlanta. And and I wanted to share that with the rest of the community so that they also can be proud and not shy away. You know, after the Leo Frank case and these other instances of anti-Semitism, the Jewish community kind of withdrew. What we need to do is the opposite. We need to embrace the good, the bad, and the ugly and uh, shine light on the contributions, but also expose the anti-Semitism that existed and always has existed. I mean, we saw that during John Ossoff's campaign. Uh, we saw instances of anti-Semitism emerge there. So it still very much so exists. I don't think it's ever going to go away, but we need to combat it. And I think the ADL and, and the, uh, the Jewish Federation of Greater Atlanta and the Brema Museum with all of our educational programming. So we have to work together as a community to highlight those contributions and also to investigate and expose anti-Semitism and, and hatred in all forms whenever we see it. Steve, do you think conversations such as these can make a difference in non-Jews awareness of Jewish issues as well as Jewish contributions in the history of Atlanta? 
I certainly hope so. I think talking with people is one of the most productive and broadening experiences we can have, uh, especially talking with people who are different than us. One of the problems in our social media era is that folks are stovepipe. They're only talking to those who think and feel as they do. So anything that can broaden the conversation and put it out among various groups, I'm all for. So I hope we get a good turnout. And uh, I'm sure the Bremen will get a good turnout for all of these conversations. It's an ambitious program. The one other thing I'll mention is that we can't forget the Temple bombing in 1958 and what a shattering impact that had on Atlanta's Jewish community. Uh, I urge you to read Melissa Faye Green's book on it if you haven't, but that was a an aftershock of the Leo Frank lynching in a way. And I didn't realize how truly serious it was until I read Melissa's book and saw the links between uh, some of the men, at least supportive of the Birmingham church bombing five years later and our temple bombing here and in Atlanta. And it was a miracle that no one was injured in Atlanta, but there have been these shocks that have coursed through Atlanta and I don't think, and through all the world. And I don't think we can believe that anti-Semitism is a dead issue. And I think QAnon and some of the disinformation generating forces in our culture are certainly sources of anti-Semitism. Well, this has been fascinating, and I thank you for your insight. It's fascinating to see the shadow cast by the Leo Frank case. It's still palpable. It really is. And you're right about Melissa Faye Green's book is stupendous. You know, I'll just add Quickly, I thought it was profound and it kind of ties things together that John Ossoff took his oath as a senator on Rabbi Rothschild's Bible. And to me, that is an actual physical link between the past and the present and the future of Judaism in Atlanta. Steve Oney is the author of And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan and the Lynching of Leo Frank. We also heard Jeremy Katz, director of Southern Jewish History Archives at the Bremen Museum and author of The Jewish Community of Atlanta, a book of historic photography. The Atlanta Jewish History Talks begin tomorrow at 10.30 a.m., with Steve Oney and the Bremen founding archivist Sandra Berman. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The Sundance Film Festival kicks off tomorrow, and you need not travel to Utah to attend. The Atlanta Film Society partnered with Sundance to showcase this year's new films. Atlantans can view them safely at the Plaza Theatre's drive-in and online. I spoke with the founder and executive director of the Atlanta Film Society, Chris Escobar, about this partnership and adapting formats during the pandemic. What have you learned from this past year's experiences about the importance of being nimble when it comes to these circumstances? I've learned that it is it is important to keep trying no matter what. I've learned that you can either sink by yourself or rise up with those around you. You know, the Plaza and the Atlanta Film Society would not be where it is today from the last nine months were it not for the partnership with each other, but were it not for the partnership with our friends like at Dad's Garage, were it not for the moment of attention and opportunity we get with folks like you guys, but also were it not for the outpour of support from the community who have who have donated, who have just shown the support on social media, were it not for the tremendous amount of work and willingness to roll up their sleeves from the Plaza and Film Society staff among, you know, amidst probably one of the scariest chapters in both of these organizations, you know, half a century or more than half a century history. And so, you know, this this only we're only still here because of all of these things. And had one of these things not been part of the equation, I don't know that I could have said the same statement. And so to me, it's just underlined that, you know, even when things are unclear or uncertain, it's worth trying. It means that you need to rely on your friends and and like-minded people more than ever. And, And you need to make sure that, you know, you communicate what you know and don't know and and that you just try and people and that's been the the moving thing is that people have really really responded to the attempt to make the best of the situation keep in mind safety and being smart and being considerate of people's lives and their livelihoods and uh you know and i just i have with all the challenges that this past year has presented the most overwhelming feeling i've had is gratitude Chris Escobar is the founder and executive director of the Atlanta Film Society. The Sundance Film Festival kicks off tomorrow and runs through February 3rd. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. For many music lovers all around the world, Mozart has reached a level of musical perfection unsurpassed by any composer in history. In his all-too-brief life of 35 years, he left us 
with 626 compositions, some of the most sublime, transcendent, and universally adored music in history. And today is his birthday. Mozart was born on January 27th, 1756 in Salzburg, Austria. WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart joins us for a Mozart Geburtstag celebration. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Lois, and happy birthday, Wolfie. I feel like we should get a Zachertort with some birthday candles in it today. A whole lot of them, and um, you had me at Zachertort. <laughs> you know, every year I spend time listening to Mozart with my students, and I always ask them, you know, I know a lot of them are listening to the, the latest pop music of the day, and I, I say, you know, why does this music matter? What is it about Mozart that is meaningful hundreds of years later today? And I hear from them in lots of different kinds of categories that, that his music seems so emotionally deep, that it's so clear uh, that it has this kind of humming electricity and energy and enthusiasm about it, and that it has this very obvious structure when you first listen to it, but that it's always changing. It has such interesting textures and colors. I think for a lot of us, there's this paradox of Mozart's music being at once so simple, but on the other hand, so complicated and layered at the same time. And the range of Mozart's composition goes from the giddiness of the Queen of the Night aria to dragging Don Giovanni down to the flames of hell, which is a pretty big range. Oh, a wide range of emotion. Scott, certain composers such as Mahler are remembered for symphonies, uh, for specializing in a particular genre, or at least those that have come down to us as their specialty. Others, like Richard Strauss, we associate with tone poems, Handel with great oratorios. Mozart excelled at everything. He was a master of form, of operas, symphonies, chamber music, songs, piano works, every genre that was performed during his lifetime. Yeah, I agree. It's so hard to find composers who kind of check the box in every single category of music that was in during their lifetimes. And if I try to pick out why, I think his music works in all of these categories, why it's good for the here and now just as much as it was in the 18th century, I would say because of its clarity. It's super efficient, it's confident and sincere, and as many musicians, both on the podium and in the orchestra and in the chamber rehearsal would say, it's just perfectly crafted. And there are some great tunes. Oh, yes. We know a lot about Mozart, the character, and Lord knows he was a character. <laughs> Some of our familiarity with him has been colored by tall tales and even a hilarious, not accurate Hollywood <laughs> film. That's correct. <laughs> Mozart was, by many accounts, arrogant, lewd, excessive in his behavior. 
the perfect spoiled brat. Plenty of material for the gossip columns, but today, with profound gratitude, we say happy birthday with a celebration of his music. And Lois, I honestly have no idea how to pay proper homage to this musical genius whose music fills libraries and who has other libraries filled up with books about his music. So let's just dive in and go with Curtain Up. Overture to the Marriage of Figaro. Sir George Schulte conducting the London Philharmonic in that recording. This cornerstone of the operatic repertoire was written in 1786 and continues a story that began with Rossini's opera, The Barber of Seville. The sparkling overture to Figaro is often played as a concert opener. Part of what I love about this overture is the way we are thrust into the mood of the opera and the very character of Figaro with the opening notes. Scott, this is not only my favorite opera, but I have a sweet personal association I'd like to share. Oh, yes. When my husband, Dom, formally proposed to me, he gave me a recording of The Marriage of Figaro, along with an Indiana University t-shirt. That's the perfect proposal combo right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's, he's such a romantic. The music from Figaro is madcap hilarity, and it's sheer joy for orchestral musicians and for listeners. There's actually no music from the opera itself, which is an old tradition from opera and later from musical theater, but it does establish a hustle and bustle spirit, and as you say, sets the tone for the show that follows. Classical orchestras in the 18th century weren't as big as ones we typically hear today. They were often about 20 or 30 players, but this music still works great for large orchestras today. You also get to hear Mozart's penchant for wind instruments like flutes, oboes, clarinets, bassoons, horns and trumpets, and even really festive timpani. Mm. Mozart was a child prodigy achieved early fame as a performer and improviser. We're talking about age six. 
he yeah, was does. <laughs> we're we're talking early. He was a prodigious freelance composer. And it was at the end of his all too brief life that he created some of his most profound and moving works, including the Requiem, which he left unfinished at the time of his death. His clarinet concerto also dates from the very last year of his life, and it is extraordinary. This piece, and I say this as a very jealous saxophonist, might be one of the most perfect concertos for any instrument ever written. Mozart was a cheerleader for wind instruments and especially for the clarinet and the basset horn, which didn't evolve too far past his lifetime. But he was inspired to write a number of pieces for clarinet for his friend and fellow Freemason and fellow gambling buddy, Anton Stadler, who was a magnificent clarinetist in the Viennese Imperial Wind Band and Court Orchestra. Mozart wrote this concerto in 1791, just weeks before his death. It's in three movements, and the piece lasts about a half hour. Virtuosity by clarinetist Richard Stoltzman with the English Chamber Orchestra in the first movement of Mozart's clarinet concerto. The clarinet was kind of an exotic instrument in Mozart's day, but he was immediately attracted to the strongly differentiated colors that are available in the clarinet's different registers. It's really dark and chocolatey down in that lower one. It's warm and sounds like the human voice in the middle and bright and clear in the upper register. And I love this piece because it is intentionally not a virtuosic dazzler that you would play kind of as sorbet at the end of a concert. It certainly puts the clarinet player through their paces, but this first movement is graceful and symmetrical and pristine in its clarity. By contrast, the second movement is gentle and reflective, even prayer-like. This really is an operatic aria for clarinet and orchestra, Scott. You can hear the song-like melodies that are built out of the simplest material.
so gorgeous, but in a way resigned and sad. And I can't help wondering, Lois, if Mozart knew on some level that time was running out. Oh, we can only imagine. Keys, or the scales which serve as the building blocks for musical pieces, held special meaning for Mozart in operas, symphonies, string quartets, or piano concertos. Keys were significant, if not symbolic for Mozart. For example, the key of G minor, he associated with sadness. C major, with purity and brilliance, and A major for declarations of love. He reserved D minor for the most melancholy of all keys, often tragic sounding, suitable for the darkest of life's experiences. Yeah, and you may remember this dark moment in music history. Don Giovanni faces the demonic statue and things kind of go downhill for him after this scene in the opera, literally. Uh, this, <laughs> this is D minor, dark and savage key. Mozart reserved this for a handful of special compositions. And among them is the string quartet number 15 in D minor. This is Kershaw listing 421. This quartet was likely completed around 1783, a good time in his life. And it's among those he dedicated to Franz Josef Haydn, his friend and mentor. Haydn was 34 years older. He was essentially Mozart's closest friend, the composer he admired most, and sort of a chosen father figure. But this quartet in particular is stunning. And this quartet is notably dramatic, due in large part to the key, and in a way it follows the principles of opera. There's a musical tale to tell, and then it's loaded up with contrasts and tensions and resolutions and different personalities of the members of the quartet kind of getting entangled with each other, different points of view kind of fighting it out. And the first movement starts in this very reticent way with a very vocal style tune. Emerson Quartet performing the first movement of Mozart's String Quartet number 15 
in D minor. This is definitely a more brooding emotional space from the normally bouncy Mozart, which is one reason that this piece appealed to composers in the Romantic era, which would follow Mozart and Haydn's classical era. Even though a lot of the Romantics found Mozart's music a little bit too courtly and stylish for their wild taste, they really got into some of his darker works. WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. We'll be back with more discussion of Mozart and his music after a short break. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. We're celebrating Mozart's birthday today, sharing with you some of our favorite works. It was another D minor masterpiece by Mozart, his piano concerto number 20, written in 1785 in Vienna. This was the same year, by the way, that he wrote The Marriage of Figaro, a very prolific time. The D minor piano concerto was a favorite of Beethoven's, who often played it in public. If I had to choose one favorite among the 27 piano concertos of Mozart, Scott, this D minor would be my favorite. And that's quite a list from which to choose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, And this piece was also another one of those selections in D minor that the Romantics elevated as visionary. And why was that? Well, it wasn't happy and it wasn't very peaceful. (laughs) So it kind of fed into the, the aesthetics of the Romantic era. And from the opening strains of the first movement, we're in a very stormy place, music that is characterized by agitation and swirling and tension and turbulence. In this first movement, Allegro, after about a two and a half minute introduction, the piano sneaks in. concerto in D minor by Mozart, a battle between piano and orchestra, but no clear winner. This is amazing dramatic fare. Hmm. Scott, I know that 
you as a wind band conductor and wind instrumentalist hold Mozart serenade in B flat Kirchel 361 in highest esteem. Oh, though not a wind player, I also adore this piece. It's one of my desert island works. This is a 45-minute, seven-movement blockbuster for wind instruments, subtitled The Grand Partita. It dates from 1784. And while Mozart wrote dozens of light works for background dinner music, this particular serenade was designed to be front and center. This is concert hall music. Yeah, and what a glorious work it is. I actually got to play this on alto clarinet at Indiana, which uh, substituted in for the basset horns. I've never practiced so hard in my life. Oh my. (laughs) Mozart scored the Grand Partita for pairs of oboes, clarinets, basset horns, bassoons, four French horns, and one bass instrument, which sounds best, in my opinion, with a string bass playing. But at the time, they might have used a contrabassoon or even a serpent, which was uh, an instrument that kind of uh, evolved out in Darwinian fashion. (laughs) (laughs) It developed legs. And and walked away. (laughs) This is a masterpiece of tonal color, of idiomatic writing for all these different wind instruments, amazing melodies, and really just a a great collection of tunes in the seven movements that really highlight the expressive power of wind instruments. There's a fabulous scene from Peter Schaeffer's Amadeus back from 1985 when composer Salieri who probably actually didn't poison Mozart, is describing hearing Mozart's music for the first time. On the page, it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse, bassoons, basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. (laughs) And then, suddenly, High above it, an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering. Until a clarinet took it over. Sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. This was no composition by a performing monkey. This was a music I'd never heard. Filled with such longing, such unfulfillable longing. It seemed to me that I was hearing the voice of God. Excuse me. Why would God choose an obscene child to be his instrument? It was not to be believed. This piece had to be an accident, but had to be. And so here's the opening of that adagio from the Grand Partita without the color commentary.
Sir Neville Mariner leading the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, who performed the actual soundtrack for the film Amadeus. Ironically, they could not receive an Oscar nomination for best score because the music had been pre-composed. <laughs> Even though they didn't have to pay him any royalties. I know, they saved a ton of money on that soundtrack. Oh, always tragic, poor Mozart. He wrote 41 symphonies, starting when he was a small child, and finished his last three in one febrile season in 1788. The final, his symphony number 41 in C, was later nicknamed the Jupiter Symphony after the thunderbolt-hurling Roman god. Yeah, Lois, you talked about your Desert Island pieces. This is in my pick-me-up playlist. A brilliant and majestic, energized symphony, and especially noteworthy is the fourth movement of the Jupiter Symphony, which contains incredibly detailed counterpoint, and that's the, the art of weaving and layering lots of different independent musical lines all together. So at one point, and remember, we're well into the classical era, we hear this five-part Fugue, which is like a canon or a round, which evokes Johann Sebastian Bach from many years prior, but now in a much more modern setting. And at the very end of the symphony, he spins the five themes of this fugue into a double fugue, which is a kind of musical miracle. today, I have no doubt that Mozart would have had his own reality TV show, and you'd probably see his face on tabloids as you were checking out at the supermarket. But luckily, his music lives on and is some of the most alive music that we have anywhere. So treat yourself to some masterful music of Mozart today on his 265th birthday. Scott, it is always a treat to be with you. Thank you. Thanks, Lois. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm your host, 
Lois writes us, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash city lights. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.